This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author June Melby discusses her new memoir, My Family and Other Hazards. Then our own Mark Rotella previews some very tasty cookbooks. (laughs) But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. Finally, some movement on the nonfiction list. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we've got... uh, I'm just going to talk about three of the uh, titles in Top Mm Ten, and they all seem to be self-help in some way or another. We've got at number three, How the World Sees You by Sally Hogshead. This is the the subtitles, Discover Your Highest Value Through the Science of Fascination. She believes that the greatest value you can add is to become more of yourself. So this is... uh, number three on the bestseller list and next one we have is all in a startup by uh diana kander the uh, subtitle of this is launching a new idea when everything is on the line so this is a little bit about uh, business as well and finally at number seven uh the family of jesus life-changing bible study series and this is written by uh uh, novelist, inspirational novelist Karen Kingsbury, and she offers a view of six of the family members of Jesus, that is six people who were closest to uh, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Jesus' brother James, John the Baptist, and Zachariah, as well as Elizabeth. And they're all anchored in scriptural truth, and they're creating a life-changing and unprecedented emotional connection to the Bible, says the uh, book's flap copy. All right. So that's what we have there. Nice range, depending on what part of your life you might feel you need help with. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Good variety. Well, there's uh, not all that much that's new on the fiction side. Uh, we have a new number five that is The City, a novel by Dean Koontz. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's a it's a Dean Koontz thriller with uh, a sort of horror aspect, as, as he often does. I really feel that Koontz is kind of overlooked critically. Mm. Like everybody sort of made a fuss over Stephen King. King and he totally broke out into the mainstream publishing publishing world. And Koontz never quite did that. He's right. he's still very firmly genre, um, but he's I think he's just as good a writer. And he's really been keeping people consistently mm-hmm. engaged with his books for a long time. Oh, great! So yeah. that one's uh, number five on our hardcover fiction list. Uh, down at number ten, we have Born of Fury by Sherilyn Kenyon. Uh, this is uh, part of her longtime series, uh, the the Born of series. Uh, and it, this this one's really a very strong installment. Uh, it's got a lot of romance in it, but also a great many elements of both science fiction and fantasy. So you have people trapped on a barren desert planet, um, but there's also a, a league of uh, gathering in t- whose jobs are to gather intelligence and uh, essentially uh, assassinate as mm. needed, depending on who they find or as their their enemies. Oh. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of tension, a lot of suspense, um, and a romantic thread woven through it. Um, so no surprise that her fans are snatching this up, and that's at number 10. 
And finally, down at number 12, uh, just a little tip of the hat here. This is the sort of book that we, we tend not to review at PW, but uh, it, it's it's never quite clear where a humor title is going mm-hmm. to fall. Mm-hmm. But this one is William Shakespeare's The Jedi Doth Return. And uh, following hard on the heels of uh, William Shakespeare's Star Wars and William Shakespeare's The Empire Striketh Back. Uh, <laughs> Third book in the series, uh, though, of course, it is episode six, as we all know, <laughs> right. of, of the, the story of a brooding young hero, a power-mad emperor, and a star-crossed galaxy far, far away. So these are the familiar Star Wars stories just rewritten in, in sort of quasi-Shakespearean English. Right. Right. There's, you would think that there would be a very small subset of people to whom this would appeal, and yet there it is, number 12 on our hardcover bestseller list uh, with a you know, good 5,000 copies. Uh-huh. Sold in its first great. week, so <laughs> Not bad. somewhere out there are five thousand very happy fans of Shakespeare and Star Wars. And Star Wars, exactly. So two two great tastes that inexplicably taste great together. Well, I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, June Melby tells us about the literal and metaphorical hazards of running a mini golf course. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got June Melby on the line. Her new memoir is My Family and Other Hazards. June, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. So tell us about your book and what the hazards of the title comes from. (laughs) Well, my family bought a miniature golf course when I was 10 and had it for 30 years, and it was our backyard business, Ah, which is an understatement, you know, and it was sort of like the child in the family who had special needs that we all took care of, uh, my sisters and my parents and I, and um, (laughs) we dedicated most of our time taking care of that business and the tourists who showed up. So I wrote a book about the 30 years we were there, and the hazards refers to the obstacles on every one of the 18 holes. So I, I have definitely played my share of mini golf. It's actually a, a thing I grew up doing a lot. And I guess I never really thought about what it might be like to, to be a private family running a mini golf course. I always thought of them as belonging to sort of faceless business entities. So, <laughs> so what was that like for you? You know, it was really funny because people came every year. It wasn't like a tourist town where people just come in once and never you never show up again. Um, so we saw the same people come back year after year after year, and we saw the same faces growing up. And then we saw them come with their kids, and then we saw them come with their grandchildren. And it was wild seeing that. Uh, I really did learn a lot watching people, and so that's why I kind of structured the book with you know, lessons you learn from having a miniature golf course in your backyard. <laughs> so if you could describe, I mean, was this really in your backyard? And, and uh, tell us where it is uh, this was, the state, the town, uh, and maybe describe a little bit about it. Yeah, it's located in Wapaka, Wisconsin. It's still there. And it is located on a lake. Mm-hmm. And there's a peninsula of land. And the miniature golf course is on one side, and the parking lot by the road, and then the cottage right in the middle of the peninsula. So people could come by either car or boat, and they did. Oh, wow. So people would come, like 20 people piled in a pontoon boat would show up at our dock, and canoers would show up, and then they'd come from the other side. And we were right in the middle, so it was kind of like 
living in the middle of a city park. Hmm. And people would picnic on our yard right outside the bedroom window. Oh, wow. And, and people would stream past the house, you know, half naked, coming off the lake, and then peel off their wet bills to pay for things. So we had, like, a little display of wet bills in the ticket booth. And, and it was just, you know, a very weird setting to grow up. You know, right outside the bedroom window, you look down and there's the clown from number 18. (laughs) So I I have to ask, what were your parents thinking? (laughs) (laughs) You know what's funny? You actually quote them. They say that all the time. Are you, you know, what were we thinking? We had no idea what we were doing. You know, they say it just (laughs) fell in our laps. You know, there were school teachers and school teachers don't have an income in the summertime. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Job, so they thought it seemed like a good idea, and but they had no business experience, had never run a business. They were just, you know, well, we'll just figure it out along the way. So, you just to give a little uh, glimpse into the book, you have one such hazard called the rocket. Tell us about that, and maybe a story that that kind of uh, that 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 inspired. Well, the rocket is the first hole. The, the course was designed and built by another school teacher back in 1959. <laughs> wow. And following the tradition of people in that time were making a lot of miniature golf courses on their own, just crafting them. They weren't manufactured somewhere. So he used what materials he could find, in which case, number one, it looks like a rocket, but it's really an unexploded missile. <laughs> it's, a, it's a practice bomb my dad figured, from World War II. And it looks like a rocket. And so that's mounted uh, at number one, and you put underneath it. So when we first arrived, we were like, well, it looks like an unexploded bomb. You know, is it? We don't know. And so uh, I used that to base the first chapter. We're like, we have something in the yard. We don't know if it's an unexploded bomb. as a symbol for the whole mini golf course. We, we don't even know what we're doing here. <laughs> wow. So, so was it actually an unexploded bomb? Well, we thought out later, you know, it's so funny. My dad didn't reveal a lot of things to us until <laughs> later years. Maybe it was like five years ago. He goes, oh, no, that was a practice bomb. There was never anything explosive inside. I'm like, well, why didn't you mention that, you know, years ago? Why did you, you knew that all along? So that's pretty funny. It was, it was, it was less exciting this way. I don't know. Yeah, it really was, I suppose. Um, it does look like a rocket. I think the original owner, you know, added a couple things to look like a space rocket from a 1950s mm-hmm. sci-fi movie. The whole place looks like looks like the 1950s when it was built. Well, you also have a, a hazard called, or was, an outhouse. Tell us about yeah. that and uh, describe it to us and tell us about the, the theme surrounding that. You're asking me to describe an outhouse. Well, okay. <laughs> no, sure. as as it was do- as it as it as it appeared on your golf course. <laughs> well, it's you know it's like a Disneyland version of an outhouse, meaning it's a little bit smaller than normal size, but built to scale. Mm-hmm. You know, with a slanty roof and a couple of holes, and you pit, you want to putt in the right hand hole, as the sign says, putt into the right hand hole, or you'll be sorry. And if you go in the left-hand hole, the ball rolls back to you, and you've got to try again. Um, well, the, <laughs> the theme there is, you know, why does an outhouse have two holes traditionally? <laughs> That's really weird. Why would you ever need to share that moment with someone else? So um, the theme for that chapter, for that hazard, is 
family because, of course, that's the only person you would ever share that moment with is someone you're related to. So in that chapter, I talk about my extended family and the weird things we did together. Not outhouse things, but the other <laughs> not, not that kind of weird. The, the more uh, innocuous yeah. kind of weird. Uh, you know, because every family has weird traditions, of course, and usually they come out in the summertime. That's when people get together. And so summer is a really special time. I really wanted to spend some time talking about that, you know. Summer is when we all really do these traditional things, not just Christmas, not just Christmas at all. Summer goes on for longer. We have our reunions, and everybody has the things we do. And so, you know, one of my things my family does is we we fight about money, and we chase each other around trying to give each other money. And I talk about that. (laughs) We're trying to give each other money. Yeah, maybe I'm giving it away. But yeah, (laughs) my family has a money fight every year. And um, we'll do it again this summer. We're meeting up in a couple of weeks, and I can predict it. It will happen every time as we're, you know, as their family reunion is ending, everybody takes out their checkbooks and their wallets and tries to give each other money, pay for the food and pay for the beverages. And and, um, it was like a chase scene at a strip club. (laughs) (laughs) It really was, you know, sticking money into each other's pockets and waistbands. Crazy. So you're a former stand-up comedian, uh, but yeah. you went uh, to the University of Iowa where you got your MFA in nonfiction. So how much of your comedy writing translated to writing this book? That's a really good question. You know, I think that um, stand-up comedy is great. You really get a chance to feel empowered and you get to say what you want. Mm-hmm. You can write something one afternoon and then go on stage that night and say anything, as long as you have a punchline every five to seven seconds. You know, that's the only restriction. And so you really get a chance to say things the way you want them to. And I think it helped me develop my voice, whatever that means, the way I put things. Um, Because in comedy, unlike what people think, you actually repeat the same jokes, the same stories, night after night, and what you end up doing is you don't, repeat the ones that don't work Mm -hmm. and what works are the things that are true Mm. oddly and i thought it was awesome because so as you keep going you end up finding how it is you put things because Mm -hmm. those things work the best Mm. i think it was an advantage having that experience than before i went to a rigorous writing program where i learned the technique you know writing for the page but i already had my way of i like to put things weird and i compare things to (laughs) Uh, strange other things. I compare the the mole hole over the back of hole number three to Sisyphus rolling his ball up the hill because he had an advantage. His mole hill was symmetrical and ours was very lopsided. <laughs> <laughs> it was an approximation. I, I, I don't think anyone's. I don't think anyone's ever envied Sisyphus before. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. But it's an excuse in that chapter to talk about, you know, perfection is overrated and, you know, approximation is where it's at and and also the despair of not ever being able to get your ball in that one. Mm-hmm. And you're also a musician. Tell us a little bit about creating art in front of people, either as a performer or as a writer whose book is now out in the world. Creating art in front of other people. Well, you get to find out right off the bat if you're anywhere hitting the mark. You know, there's uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can find out pretty quickly. I think it's very rewarding. You know, if if an audience responds, 
you get to congratulate yourself. And if they don't, you get to blame yourself. You can't really put the blame on anyone else. So it's kind of empowering and, um, and motivating. And I love, I love getting up in front of people because you really get that kind of a, it's hard to explain, the kind of communication you get with an audience. It's, um, it's not like a conversation with an individual, and it's not like a conversation via email or online, but there's something that's exchanged, and it's sort of magical. Mm. For lack of a better way to put it. Sure. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? Were there the stories of your family that you then, uh, you know, you, you were looking for a structure uh, and you used a golf course? Or was it a golf course itself that, that kind of uh, put you on the path to these stories? Well, I think all along I knew this is a story that should be told because it's just so weird. You know, it's just <laughs> weird that we had half-naked people walking by our windows, and that was normal. Hmm. Um and waiting on tourists instead of having our own vacations. But I think it wasn't until my parents sold it and had to give it up after 30 years that I realized, okay, now I know why I have to do this, because I was completely distraught. It was such a heartache. You know, when you lose your family home, you know, a lot of people have experienced that. The place you grew up, it's just, it's heartbreaking to give it up. Mm -hmm. I think especially so because... You know, each of us in my family had spent so much of our time and energy putting it into the place, painting and mowing and upkeep and repairing things. Um, and so when it was time to let it go, I was just heartbroken. And that's when I knew, okay, it's not just about funny stories. It's about trying to figure out what this place meant to me, meant to me and, you know, the loss of that loss of childhood so it's funny you know (laughs) (laughs) it's about loss but it's funny hopefully both when they sold it did they sell it to someone who was going to keep up the the mini golf course and keep it going is there now somebody else there having people picnic half naked under their windows or uh is it just they all all turned into lawn now that's a good question well um it's been 10 years since it sold it took me that long to go to graduate school and write the book. And that, in that 10 years, the, the people who took it over, they never lived in the house like we did. They rented it out. Mm. So no one's lived there, you know, and there hasn't been a family that's lived there and ran it like we did. Uh, but it's for sale again right now. You can buy Tom Thumb. Right <laughs> if you want to. And if you want to know how to run the place, you can read the book, and I'll tell you. A unique opportunity for our listeners. Well, we've been talking with June Melby, and you can find her book, My Family and Other Hazards, in stores right now. June, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Ours, too. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, my co-host, Mark Rotella, tells us what's happening in the world of cookbooks. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior Editor Mark Rotella tells us what's moving and shaking in cookbook publishing. Hi, Mark. Hello, Rose. Uh, so tell us what's happening in the cookbook world. Um, we just did our, our announcements mm-hmm. issue and uh, talked about some of the most highly anticipated cookbooks. Um, have you seen any of the 
those hit the shelves yet? Not yet. The, we have seen reviews of some of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you're right. We In uh, the June 23rd issue of Publishers Weekly, it's also available online. You could see uh, an article that I wrote, part of the announcement, called Kitchen Ease. Uh, and we do talk about, as, as we all do, uh, all of us editors talk about the, uh, the books that we're seeing in our categories. And um, we also have a uh, feature, cookbook feature, uh, coming out uh, on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, that one was written by Natalie Danford. But it's been a big, this looks like a big season for cookbooks and, and books on food and wine. I feel is one of the categories like children's books, I think, that still do well in hardcover where there's not as much interest uh, uh, in the digital format or an ebook. And um, design wise, books are getting. Uh, more and more beautiful, or at least uh, there's been a lot more attention paid to design. I mean, mm-hmm. many of them, they've always been, there's that, that there's that, uh, that, that the, the coffee table books, and then there's the ones that you use in your kitchen. And, and it seems like those have all been coming together to form beautifully uh, uh, designed, uh, usable books. And so what we're seeing this season is uh, the title of the article I did was uh, Kitchen Ease. And it says this season's batch of cookbooks helps home cooks navigate their kitchens with ease. So Jenny Rosenstrack, she's the author of Dinner, A Love Story. She talks about uh, family meal planning. Dana Cohen, she's the editor-in-chief of Food and Wine. Uh, she's got a really interesting book coming out. It's called Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, 65 Great Chefs Teach Me How to Cook. And here Dana, you would think she's as, as the uh, editor-in-chief of, of one of the biggest uh, food and wine uh, magazines, namely Food and Wine. You would think that she knows her way around the kitchen and can cook anything flawlessly, but here she admits that she can't, and so she enlists the help of many a shelf, from Tom, Tom Colicchio, uh, Mario Batali, and several others. And, and here she, she presents, here's what I'd like to cook. Here's what I'm, what am I doing wrong? And they write back and they say, well, here's how I do it. So each recipe has a different chef as her mentor. Um, that one is coming out from Echo. It's going to be a big book, I think. And uh, we've got Mark Bittman, who's got a book coming out called How to Cook Everything Fast. And so we're seeing a lot uh, of uh, books going back to the kitchen, uh, cooking with time constraints in mind, and how to make the most of what you have, the most of your time, and create great meals with little, uh, with ease. And here he divides the book. He breaks down the book by he breaks it down, not so much by ingredients, but uh, list as to what you do when. So as you're doing, as you're boiling the water, you should be chopping garlic, and and mm-hmm. it takes you step by step. So it kind of takes the thinking out of it, uh, and you could just read what you're supposed to be doing when you're supposed to be doing it. Um, but it's kind of interesting in Natalie's piece. Uh, uh, the title of the uh, of our uh, of, of the uh, cookbook feature is called "Chefs Cook at Home," and uh, this is a twist to the familiar chef cookbook genre, which is rather than uh, recreating restaurant dishes, chefs are taking you into their home kitchens. And so we have um, one big one, Marcus Samuelson. Uh, he's uh, was the former chef of uh, Aquavit Restaurant in the city, and now he's in uh, Harlem. Uh, with with his with his uh, restaurant there, and here he invites home cooks into his home, and he 
shows them this is what I cook at home. So we've been seeing more and more of these kinds of cookbooks. Uh, we also have Fabio's American Home Kitchen, Kitchen Against the Italian Chef, uh, recreates dishes in his own kitchen, not using restaurant quality um, ovens and grills, but just simply here's how you could do it at home. So those those are some of the trends that we're seeing right now. So tell me a little bit about um, the the gender split these days in the cooking world. For a long time, there was this idea that um, the men were the chefs and they cooked in the restaurants and the women were the cooks and they cooked in the home. But it sounds like that line is blurring a whole lot. Restaurants are seeing more and more women as head chefs now. Mm-hmm. And so that that business itself is gone from a, you know, like what we've been seeing the last decade is kind of a bad boy, rough image. We're still maybe a rough, you know, rough hewn, but but we're seeing more cooks there. But you're right, we are seeing, and, and it's a really good point, that uh, more men cooking for home. It used, to be, it also used to be that you would see men doing the meat and grilling books. And right. for the mm-hmm. most part, that's still the case, that we did have one last uh, season, a woman who wrote a book on creating heat and, you know, and just like an outdoor grilling and cooking. But for the most part, that's where you see the men cook right. outside, the women cook indoors, the but man you're can at, a plan. Right. Exactly. But, but of, right. Exactly. Exactly. And, but now you're seeing, uh, more and more men wanting to cook at home and doing it. And, uh, so yeah, so so that divide is not not as strong as it was, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just just to talk about a couple of other trends, each season it seems we see a whole new uh, cuisine. You know, it was Italian is always popular. Sometimes sure. you'll see French, sometimes mm-hmm. you'll see Mediterranean. You know, Mediterranean has been big, but now we have German cuisine, and there's three books coming out. Uh, Chronicle is going to publish the new German cooking by Jeremy Nolan, and we also have Mimi Sheridan, uh, well known cook book author and writer, The German Cookbook, A Complete Guide to Mastering Authentic German Cooking, and that's coming out from Random House. And uh, from Prospect Park Books uh, is, is kind of a neat uh, take on German cooking, and I don't quite know how it works, but it, I, but I think it could work. It's called Das Cookbook German Cooking California Style, and you would have never thought those two were paired together. I, but it I would not. <laughs> and, it's from, and it's from an, a Los Angeles chef at restaurateur Hans Rockenwagner. So anyway, so that's kind of fun to see see this this trend. I mean, I think last year, two years ago, we saw a slew of Irish cookbooks, and there's one that 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 is really interesting to me. Is I think this is the first one I. I've seen uh, the cuisines of Iceland, and this is called the New Nordic Cuisines of Iceland by Gunnar Karl uh, Gislason, and uh, he's the owner of a big restaurant mm-hmm. in uh, Reykjavik. And uh, this this is going to be uh, coming out by Murdoch Books. It looks it looks pretty interesting. Now, finally, what we are also seeing is books uh, on. Uh, wines and spirits and mm-hmm. um we're seeing so many recipe books there's been books on creating your own bitters um on uh making wine but specifically cocktail books and one of the biggest ones that's coming out i think is death and company uh it's a new york uh kind of speakeasy joint it's um and they've got a really great book of cocktail recipes coming out and i think we've got three or four uh on the list and um so that's the, those are the kind of the trends that we're seeing right now. Oh, well, thank you very much for that rundown. It certainly sounds like a tasty crop of books. And most of these are coming out in the fall? Yeah, uh, they're coming out anytime between September and, for the most part, November, December. 
So people have a little time to practice the recipes before they try them out for Thanksgiving or Christmas Day. Right, exactly, exactly. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. It's always nice to have you oh, on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 